to the first episode of Spin Cycle of the Year, drumroll. And this week it's the When Do You Stop Giving the Catholic Church the Benefit of the Doubt edition <laughs> uh, of the media show that tries to make sense of the 24-hour news cycle. Yes, we're back with really bad intros broadcasting <laughs> from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and in the studio with Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis. How are you, Charlie? I'm good, Jess. I'm good. How what was your... joy to see you it's over the so desk nice. again. Yes. Uh, how was your break? My break was great. We actually um, did the staycay just because who can afford to vacay anymore <laughs> <laughs> with two kids? Um, but had a really good time. I just um, I, I kind of put it out. Um, I broadcast to everyone I knew that uh, that we were available for. Well, everyone I knew that actually lived in nice houses in potential holiday destinations <laughs> right, within right. hours, a couple of hours of Melbourne, <laughs> we were available for all um, you know gardening and. Um, um, and pet um, looking after. And so we did have a couple of little um, lovely little weekends away doing that. And otherwise I I was going to have like a full um, detox of like Twitter and news, news and media politics, and yeah. social media and I kind of did that. But then I picked up um, Nikki Savas' book, <laughs> Bulldozed, oh. <laughs> which um, – you know, like couldn't be more opposite of that. And I absolutely loved it. I was just like, I inhaled it. It was just, it's a brilliant, I'd never read any of her books actually. No, I mean, she has, I mean, the thing about Sava, apart from, apart from the many qualities she has, she is incredible contacts mm. uh, and she gets people to talk often on the record, which mm. is all, which is very impressive. And it's an interesting one. Again, it's always that question with stuff like this. It's like, well, how long did you, how long did you sit on that one? You know, and there's, all this, there's always that question about what was contemporaneously found out, what was found out after the event. But um, well, I actually I, haven't read Bulldoze yet, so yeah, I, I can't, there, yeah. There wasn't too much of that. I, I didn't feel like – it wasn't like that um, book when um, the, the in, when uh, Morrison uh, the was being Benson interviewed. Benson Chambers, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he let slip that he was the minister for everything. <laughs> but, um, no, what I loved was it's just the, the inside workings because, uh, mm, yes, mm. she has all these um, contacts, but she doesn't bother with, like, you know, the lower downs in the in the mm, prime minister's mm. office. It's all people who are connected behind yeah, yeah, the yeah. scenes. And, you know? and, and I don't. And she's one of the people who, quite refreshingly, it never does seem to colour her coverage. I also think people tell her stuff. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. you know some of the some of the stuff that people just said to her in this. I'm like, are you? Insane. Do you realise who you're talking to? But it made for terrific reading, and she's a you know she's a great writer. I I really loved it. Well, I still think you should have detoxed. I, I, I did unplug. It was funny. Um, my my kind of break. We I I have an unhealthy amount of leave that had built up over my time at Crikey. So I had a very very long holiday, and I still have a lot of leave that they want me to get rid of, which is a nice place to be, I guess. But um, uh, it was funny. I spent write a book, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't actually. That's the thing is, I thought that I would spend my kind of break being like, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna write, do some creative writing. I'm gonna do more stuff on music and culture and film. And I read a lot on those subjects, but I found I was like, oh, I've got no words left in the tank. This is, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was a big year last year. It was election it was. after election. Yes, yes. Uh, so I can heartily recommend <laughs> um, unplugging for a bit of time if you can. <laughs> 
Uh, in a few minutes, we are really kicking off the year in incredible um, style, I think, because we're going to be talking to author and Walkley uh, award-winning investigative reporter Louise Milligan uh, on tonight's show. Uh, I don't know if you caught, um, and I'm ta- I know you did, Charlie, talking to the <laughs> listeners, uh, the Four Corners episode uh, on Monday, Purity and Education Opus Day. It was uh, really confronting and just a fantastic um, piece of investigative reporting, really. Um, I, you know, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, for me, just the balance between just heart-wrenching testimony but impeccable research was mm, – it was mm, just mm. sort of – you know, pretty seamless. Um, and later on in the show, we're going to have a look at um, some more testimony during this week. I heard Rick Morton say uh, in an interview today that he, you know, he has been um, uh, relentlessly covering the robo-debt um, Royal Commission, Royal Commission yeah. day in, day out and um, tweeting about it, live tweeting about it and then covering it in his role for Saturday paper. And I, he did say today, he's like he felt like f- there was a real shift in te- in testimony last week and this week and they're, just, they're finally really getting closer to the truth mm, of what happened. Mm. Um, there was some incredible testimony this week. Um, so we'll – and uh, especially around the way the media framing of – Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so we'll talk about that later. And um, speaking of media framing, we might have – a little bit of a look as well at, um, you know, just the ongoing terrible way (laughs) some quarters of the media will frame, you know, um, stories that come out of places like Alice Springs. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, Louise Milligan is a fearless investigative reporter taking on some of this country's most powerful figures on behalf of some of the country's most vulnerable people while shining light on institutional abuse. Louise has won plenty of awards for her reporting and published two books, Cardinal, The Rise and Fall of George Pell and Witness, an investigation into the brutal cost of seeking justice. This week, in her role as an investigative reporter with the ABC's Four Corners, Louise and her team turned uh, their attention to two private Sydney schools associated with the secretive Catholic organisation Opus Dei, uh, whose influence reaches into the New South Wales government. Louise, Louise joins us now to talk about this investigation on what I imagine is quite a challenging day for survivors and victims of abuse within the Catholic Church. And on that note, some of the subjects that um, we might cover in uh, tonight's chat uh, include potentially um, child and, and sexual abuse, homophobia, homophobia and religious indoctrination. So please um, take care. Feel free to tune out if that's um, something that you might find troubling to listen to. And uh, as always in Australia, for 24-hour free counselling, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Welcome to Triple R, Louise. Hi, great to be here. It's so wonderful to have you uh, on our show uh, and our first for 2023, so we're super excited. Um, It must be a bit of a strange day today with George Pell's funeral, and we'll get to that in a bit, but first I just wanted to congratulate you on uh, and the Four Corners team on this week's incredible episode, Purity and Education in Opus Dei. For listeners unfamiliar with Opus Dei and the uh, Tangara and Cherrybrook schools that the episode really kind of covered... Could you give us a little bit of a background? 
Well, so the schools are run, they're independent schools um, that are aligned with Opus Dei, and I'll explain Opus Dei in, in a moment. But the point is that although Opus Dei is a small part of the Catholic Church, they're not Catholic Church schools. They're not Catholic mm-hmm. education office schools. They're, they were set up in the 1980s by a group of parents who wanted to have more of an influence on their children's education. So they set up a thing called the Parad Foundation and those schools um, were the first ones to be set up. They've now got um, a, a few more. But um, Opus Day uh, provides the priests for those schools. It also provides teachers for those schools. So they're known as numeries. Um, numeries in Opus Day are celibate um, members of Opus Day who live in study centres. And on the account of, you know, the people that we spoke to for the story are expected to recruit members for Opus to Opus Day, including teenagers at the schools. Um, Opus Day is a what's known as a prelature of the Catholic Church. It's a very small organisation in the scheme of, you know, a huge behemoth, which is the Catholic Church. Mm. It only has 650 members in Australia, although it does have a lot of what's known as cooperators, who are people who are essentially sympathetic to Opus Day. Mm. It's a very um, conservative part of the Catholic Church. Um, it indulges in a lot of, oh, indulges is maybe not the right word, but it, it, it practices a lot of things which went out a long time ago in the Catholic Church. So any of, you know, your listeners and certainly myself, I went to a Catholic school uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, a lot of the things that they teach at these schools were well and truly gone by the time we we went to school. You know, it's very much um, hellfire and brimstone type stuff. And um, they they are very much opposed to a lot of the modernising influences in the Catholic Church that sort of like swept in after Vatican II. They're very controversial in the Catholic Church, so there are a lot of people who think, you know, that they're fantastic because they're providing like priestly vocations mm. at a time where, you know, it's you're not seeing very many young Australian men wanting to become priests or women wanting to become nuns. Opus Day is providing young Australian priests. And um, it, it was a part of the Catholic Church that was very much supported by George Pell. So the previous archbishop in Melbourne, Frank Little, wouldn't allow Opus Day into Melbourne, but Pell allowed them in. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, but I mean, you know, that wasn't really part of our investigation. No. But, but, um, but yeah, it's they all those liberalising influences they're opposed to, and Pope Francis, um, quite controversially, as far as Opus Day is concerned, actually very recently removed their bishop from Rome. So there are lots of sort of arguments going on in the Catholic Church at the moment between the sort of progressive arm and the and the the conservatives, which include Opus Dei, but certainly in Sydney, um, they are pretty powerful considering how small they are. And 
Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, um, the, so I guess the crux of the, the show, what it did uncover was that the teaching methods, um, you know, mm. up, up until very recently could be described as pretty brutal <laughs> from a, you know, made, mainstream educational p- point of view. And, this, you know, core to that, um, those revelations were this incredible student testimony that was so powerful and actually really heartbreaking um, you know, from from a number of point of points of view, um, young women who were traumatised really in terms of um, yeah. con- consistently being um, having it beaten into them that their virginal purity was everything to their status, um, being discouraged very aggressively from taking the uh, HPV. Um, virus um, and then also from <clears throat> there was um, really heartbreaking testimony from a young man who talked about the extreme homophobia that he experienced mm-hmm. um, I, I was interested to ask about um, I, I f- it felt to me like that he- that testimony was really heartbreaking but around it was this really rigorous research and, and based mm-hmm. on this and your other um, reporting with um, survivors and victims of abuse is that a, a, a strategic approach that you make sure that it can't ever just be pinned on individual testimony? Oh, absolutely. But it's not just that it can't be pinned on individual testimony. It's also that we want to, as Four Corners journalists, like we have a really proud tradition. Our show has been going for 60 years and it's, you know, considered the pinnacle of investigative journalism in this country. So everything that we do has to be fact-checked more comprehensively than anything I've seen in any other place I've worked in journalism, and I have worked in a lot of places. Mm. Um, But also, you know, we... I often describe it as we have a tip that goes to air and then underneath it is a huge and hulking iceberg Mm -hmm. of research. And so for all the people that appear on camera, and we did have a lot of people on camera, as you saw, we also have a huge number of people off camera too who inform our research. And in this story it was really important because... A lot of the people who are the more recent graduates of these schools are the ones who can let us know that this stuff is still very much happening, but are also the ones who are most subject to, you know, potential uh, blowback from Mm -hmm. the community because, you know, they're often still living with their parents and if they're from Opus Dei families, which a number of them were, or from very conservative families, um, if they found, were found out, they would, you know, they would have a really hard time. A, a lot of them still had siblings in the schools. Um, mm. So we had people right up to 2021. And I would say actually more of the people that we spoke to and we had very comprehensive testimonials from that they wrote as well as our right. pre-interviews with them, we had more people that were newer graduates than older graduates, but the older graduates were much freer to be able to talk about the culture, but a lot of the older graduates kind of said to us that when they met the younger ones, they were shocked to learn that things that they thought they surely couldn't be doing now, they were still doing, and and in fact, in some cases, it had got worse. That's shocking. Louise, it's Charlie here. Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, following on from the kind of rigour and, and uh, time that you have to spend on a, on a piece like this, um, 
tell us a bit about, I mean, when did you first kind of become aware of some of the issues that you guys explored this week? And, and how sure. long overall did you did it end up working on this particular uh, episode? So I was first contacted by Claire Harris, who is the um, one of the women that we spoke to. Uh, she had written a piece for The Guardian a couple of years ago, and that piece didn't name Kangara the school, but a whole lot of people had read it and realised this is what she was talking about, that it was their school, and they had got in contact with her. So she contacted me in October. I was finishing off my last story for the year, and our show was already spoken for for the year, so we then started forensically investigating this and even to get to the point where Four Corners commissions a story we have to do so much work like more work than I think a lot of journalists do for their whole story if you know what I'm saying just even for the boss to say yes (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah we did that and then we started filming in December and then we go off for a break our show shuts down over sort of Christmas and we came back early in January because we wanted it to be the first story for the year just to have a bit of space between it and the New South Wales election but also because we felt that it was such an important story. Once we had got all of those testimonials and, excuse me, spoken to all of those people on camera, we realised that this was absolutely shocking And I think I can't imagine any investigative journalist hearing all of this information, seeing these heartbreaking stories and turning away. Mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm interested to know what is the process with um, interview subjects like that? Because obviously it's not a, well, we've told the story, it goes to air and that's it, done and dusted, off to, on to the next one. I imagine the floodgates open a bit and also yes. there's another round of sort of awakening once the mm-hmm. they make their story public. You know, they might decide that they're okay to go public, but then once it's actually gone to air. Um, have you heard from, from them this week? How are they? And have you heard from, you know, I imagine you m- must have had a number of other people yes. get in touch with you now. Yes. So, firstly, we have heard from so many other graduates. I haven't done a count yet because it's only been a couple of days and they're all sort of flooding in and they tell remarkably similar stories. Mm. Uh, so that's been quite amazing to to watch. And then, of course, we've had the follow-up in a sense of the Premier Dominic Perrottet announcing that he had referred this to the um, Education Standards Authority and also the Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, has announced that once that process is finished, uh, he is looking at doing a federal investigation as well. So that's been quite busy (laughs) since the story went to air. As for the graduates themselves... They have been really just... They've had a huge outpouring of love Mm. towards them and support, which has been really, really fantastic. Um, They've been pretty lucky so far that they haven't been targeted. Um, I 
think that's been reserved for me. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I noticed that you tweeted that um, you had um, received some some real some really threatening messages before it had even gone to air. Yeah, so I received um, very a very threatening message from a Redfield graduate of 2021 mm. who did it all in his own name and comes from a prominent family in the community. I have no idea why he did this, but he was very scary in his language. Mm. He made threats. He said he was going to come and find me. He talked about my family and I will not put up with being threatened in this way. It is not appropriate and I refuse to allow people to do that. So today I lodged my formal police statement in relation to that matter. It's being investigated by New South Wales Police and I hope that he gets a message that you cannot do this to people. Louise, you are amazing and it is, I guess that's, you know, you do go after these incredibly powerful institutions and a lot of these people are taught that that's, <laughs> that they are sort of enabled by the by these kind of powerful institutions. So it, it's incredible that you are standing up to them. Speaking of which, <laughs> uh, we saw in the news today George Pell's um, funeral and... Um, uh-huh. Uh, Abbott um, remembered Pell as the greatest man he'd ever known. There were a whole lot of luminaries filed into the church to memorialise George Pell. As someone who obviously has had a very close relationship over a long time um, with survivors and um, victims' families of um, abuse in the Catholic Church, how did how do you feel seeing this um, venerated figure um, receiving this ongoing kind of adoration? I feel sick for those families and for those victims. Absolutely sick. Mm. And I know how painful and traumatising it is for them. And I've, you know, spoken to them, some of them today. Um, I spoke to someone who was very, very distraught today and they feel like it's a kick in the teeth. Mm. It's like the Royal Commission never happened. That all of the findings that that very careful body over five years investigated about this person and made multiple findings against him, that it never happened. And that these people are just ignoring it and choosing to focus on the High Court decision when we know that these cases are notoriously hard to get uh, criminal convictions in. And a jury had convicted him and the Court of Appeal in Victoria had upheld that conviction. We have to accept the High Court's judgment, but... Historical sexual offence cases have, when you compare them to other types of offences, have really low conviction rates. I mean, imagine if you're making... like, Let's take George Pell out of the equation here. You're making an accusation about something that happened, let's say, when you're eight years old, Mm. and by the time you come forward, you're 46 years old. 
and people are asking you where you were standing in the room. Was he wearing purple bathers or blue bathers? Did you drink red communion wine or white communion wine? You know, I don't know, but yeah. I know that this person sexually abused me. That's a really, really difficult thing. And in those cases, the defence counsel reached to the bottom drawer for the reasonable doubts, the, the tried and true reasonable doubts. And it's, you know, it's very, very hard to prove. So that's one part of the equation. But the other part of the... And, and also, we sh should say that there were lots of other accusers of George Pell, and those matters never actually came to trial in the end. Yeah. In the case of the swimming pool trial, which I covered the 7.30 and in my book Cardinal, it was going to happen, but it was rejected on the grounds of tendency evidence so they couldn't hear it all at once and so they elected not to hear the trials individually because there had been a conviction already and it was a sense of well we've got a conviction yeah. we think it's safe we'll just stick with that and then of course it was overturned so there is so much sadness so much misery attached to the history of this man yeah and for these people all to be going to this cathedral, I mean, I understand it's really difficult to contemplate the idea that my friend, my fellow combatant in the culture wars, you know, my political um, ally that I thought I knew, that he could be an abuser of children or someone who covers up the abuse of children. How could that be? That's really hard to conceptualise. But the point is the Royal Commission found that he did cover up abuse and there were multiple accusers against this man. And I would just say to those people, look into your hearts and imagine if this was your child or imagine if you were the child who had had this fundamental thing happen to you and your brain at such... A, a, a crucial time in your development and how that might have changed your life and how traumatised you might be to see this person on television, mm. to see these people venerating him. You know, it's... And, and to have had the courage all these years later to actually put your hand up and... and, and finally and, pluck up the courage yeah, and to, to stand up. And to hope and, that you might be, that get time, justice. All that time when you... Pluck up the courage. This is something that survivors have told me again and again and again. That there's this little voice inside of them thinking, I won't be believed. Mm. And then when they do pluck up the courage, they're met with this obfuscation and cover-up and denial. And in this case, it, it went the way that it went. So, and, and, and there are all these people, I mean, I get them on Twitter all the time, just sort of, tweeting at me 7-0 as in it's like a football score or something like the high court mm, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and i just think what are these people doing have they turned sure. their minds to the tragedy of all of this instead of treating it like it's just some sort of as i say some sort of game but to your point about the culture wars and also the power of faith and not wanting to have the the system or the person that you have believed in for all this time 
turn out to be evil. And I, I'm interested to ask because this point of view has been aided and abetted by some quarters of the media. When George Pell died, mm. the Australian ran with the headline, Pell, our greatest Catholic, a saint for these times. And there are countless opinion pieces echoing these sentiments um, with Sky News following suit. In fact, there was a headline in Sky News, um, Louise Milligan's media pylon doesn't change the fact that Cardinal George Pell died an innocent man. I'm interested... I mean, these are your colleagues in a way. Um, what, what does... what what reflection do you have on the Australian media landscape that there are quarters of it that feel the need to push this narrative about George Pell? I find it perplexing and saddening that Australia has moved into this polarised discourse. It wasn't the way it was when I started in journalism at the Australian <laughs> and worked there happily and, you know, was very well regarded for five years, it saddens me that there's this culture war mentality. It saddens me the way that these people go after women and it's almost exclusively women. It saddens me that they take a position before they've really necessarily even looked into it mm. because from the very moment that I began investigating even just the Royal Commission material into George Pell before I had you know found any of the complainants and was reporting on that for 7:30 my name began to be marked and I was you know in the sights of people like Jared Henderson for instance who has written like I think between, what was it, August 21, oh, sorry, I'm just trying to remember that they've written hundreds of pieces about me, but, mm. sorry, between my book coming out, so Cardinal came out in May 2017 and August 2021, um, someone who's a friend of mine um volunteered to do this like just actually did it of their own volition I didn't ask for it but they they did a media um scrape if you like yeah. and basically they found with all the articles in News Corp um that Henderson himself had written more than a hundred articles in that time about me that is obsessive <laughs> man and 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 the the, the file goes for hundreds and hundreds like that it goes into the thousands of pages and and the the stories are almost all negative and look it allows for some syndication and repetition and so on but they're almost all negative but on the odd occasion that they were neutral um for instance when I won the Walkley Award for my book Cardinal um, which, of course, is about a terrible, tragic history and about child abuse, um, they remarked that I was a former Dolly cover girl. <laughs> what? Which, A, is not true. I was about to say, <laughs> uh, you, you go up in my estimation. <laughs> it's completely irrelevant. So, I mean, you know, like 100 years ago, I had done modelling when I was at university, but I wasn't a Dolly cover girl. But also... What has that got to do with my journalism in my 40s um, 
about childbirth. There's something really strange about that. 100%. And it, there's a bit of a theme I've noticed that they do bring this up. And it's sort of like, a, you know, they're trying to sort of, I don't know, what is the implication that I'm some sort of bimbo? I, I don't know. But yeah. It's, it's really, it's just lazy really too. strange. Yeah, it's really strange, weird. and and they make so many mistakes, and they, they, yeah. I mean, just fantasy. At one point, they had me um, with private investigators chasing after Christian Porter. I mean, just a complete fantasy, like never happened. <laughs> There's no way the ABC would allow that. There's no way the ABC would fund that. <laughs> um, and certainly Four Corners, we don't need to do that because we're forensic investigative journalists. What um, amazing uh, story. I will let you go because I know you're super busy. When we um, when we picked up the phone, you were doing an interview with Ireland, so I'm sure you've got a million other things on, Louise. But just very quickly, are there any uh, any insights into upcoming investigations that you can um, tease us with? Um, no, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd rather live. (laughs) I'm back to square one now because at the end of a four corners cycle, you know, you work, you decide what the next story is going to be. And there are always lots of options. A lot of people contact me all the time with stories and I feel almost stressed out by having to sort of say no to people sometimes or having to get people to wait. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I I love my job. It's the best job in the world. And I feel so fortunate. Um, I feel so fortunate to be brought into people's trust Mm. and to meet such amazing, brave people Um, and to be able to do a rare and magical thing in journalism, which is make change. And we at Four Corners have been able to do that, you know, with some of our stories and even this week with Opus Day, you know, that there are going to be investigations into those schools and, you know, the generations really of, of young people. I mean, we, we we spoke to before the story, it was more than 30, but it's it's got to be, you know, upwards of 50 now, I would say. But the generations of young people who have told us stories that are very, very concerning and troubling, mm. feel very gratified that someone is going to pay attention to what's going on in those schools because the bottom line is we as state and Commonwealth taxpayers or state taxpayers in New South Wales, Commonwealth, all of us, we fund these schools. Tangara got $5 million um, in funding last year which is 42% of its budget, the girls' school, um, that's a lot of money. And I read that they, to combined no. they, they received $20 million in funding in 2021. Is that right? That, that's the four schools. So there are four schools yep. across Sydney, yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, but it's not just about money. No, it's of also course not. about expectations. It's about what we accept. You know, we have a curriculum, a state curriculum for a reason. Should independent schools just to be able to veer off the side, should they be able to teach misinformation like, for example, that pornography causes holes in your brains or you won't need the HPV vaccine because you're going to get married as a virgin and have, you know, multiple children um, and that it will cause promiscuity if you have a vaccine? 
you know, a life-saving cancer mm. vaccine. Should we accept that? What should the sort of controls and oversights be of of all independent schools? Um, it's not just the Opus Dei Alliance schools, 100%. and um, we hope we hope that there will be more of a you know consistent focus on whether schools are complying with curriculum and whether schools are psychologically harming children. Because, mm. as you said, you know those stories. I mean, they just break your heart, you know, mm. and and these people, all these years after their education, I mean, there's one, one of the women that we worked with, almost every time I speak to her, she cries, mm. you know. She's, she's so traumatised by what has happened in her education and she desperately, desperately wants that not to happen with the kids who are there now. Thank you so much, Louise Milligan, for talking to us on Spin Cycle this evening. We can't wait to uh, see what's next, what investigation comes next. And thank you so much for telling these um, absolutely essential stories too and and sharing these incredible stories. I'm really appreciative of you having me on and, you know, it's lovely to be with you. Thanks so much, Louise. Okay. Thanks, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. On a completely different subject, I don't want to cross to Alan Tudge from that. <laughs> it's a real downer. <laughs> it, it, however. It, however. Well, I mean, we're not actually talking about... Needs must. No, Rochelle Miller. directly. Uh, Rochelle Miller. Yeah. Um, his, uh, his, his one-time press... Uh, media advisor, Media yes, advisor, yes. that's right. Um, uh, essentially, we've seen um, over the last couple of weeks, as we, as we alluded to at the beginning of the show, there's been um, the uh, Royal Commission into the RoboDebt uh, scheme um, and it's looking into its lawfulness and, and how it worked and things like that. Um, and these obviously Royal Commissions are always um, kind of incredible where, for the way that they do they, – they open up the hood and show you the, the engine to a degree. Um, I think what was really – I mean, and, and as as we talked about, uh, and Rick Morton talked about a lot on Twitter, and and Luke Henry Gomez and a few other people, you know, incredible revelations the whole way through. But the stuff that was very relevant to this show is uh, what Rachel Miller, his media advisor, sort of said about the process of how they manage the media with this uh, cascading uh, media crisis that they were dealing with um, in late 2016, early 2017, as more and more criticisms were coming in about these about uh, welfare recipients basically being sent debts that they hadn't actually accrued um and of course we saw that that in potentially was connected with a lot of extremely extremely awful outcomes rather than face up to it let's spin it yeah basically i mean the thing was it was to ignore essentially the um and i think you know there's been a lot of tittering about this about the 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 uh criticism they got from left-wing media outlets like mm-hmm. the abc i love um, the way michelle miller didn't even blink when she because it's so sort of ingrained into them that she did describe outlets as left-wing and right-wing and um, yeah, yeah the yeah. abc would have been catatonic to have been described as left-wing you've been <laughs> trying to shake that for a very long time <laughs> yes absolutely as i mean i think you know probably a lot of the a lot of people the sydney morning herald was also she also said that those guys are left-wing what um that's exactly it's so funny that that's how you're acting because that was exactly Catherine holmes the uh the commissioner went left-wing like <laughs> um uh but i think you know so that, that there was yeah, the, the categorizing of them into political partisan um stripes 
and she was very open about the fact that their, their, their job was to ignore, often ignore journalists from, from these outlets, but certainly ignore their coverage and not respond mm. to it in terms of making any substantive change to the, the program. And rather than do, rather than, yes, changing the program in any way, that they would place uh, stories with what they called, you know, friendly outlets. Who uh, were the right-wing ones, essentially. Uh, and, well, she, and then again, she said the right-wing outlets, uh, the, the tabloids, the Australian... Um, and actually, we, we already know this, that, that, that this had happened because it, it was quite explicitly done in, I believe, February of 2017, early, early 2017. Um, a, a writer called Andy Fox wrote about her experience with, um, with RoboDebt, with Centrelink, and uh, mm, very explicitly right. a columnist for the Canberra Times actually wrote a piece saying, well, there's two sides to every story and wrote basically... Did a with, hit job on her. And, and, did, and wrote with very, very clear knowledge that, that, that had been provided to him mm. detailed information about her individual case that had been provided to him um, by someone in the department. Uh, we now know that, that that was actually quite a quite a common pr- practice and that Alan Tudge, according to Rachel Miller's uh, testimony, would ask for individual files mm. of, um, of complainants, essentially, that were going to the media about their story. And this is, again, actually a b- very bad reflection also on the, the public service that he was provided with that information and didn't say, no, that's actually very inappropriate that you would ask. Uh, and that information was, again, yeah, was, was, was given to friendly journalists so that they could give, uh, they could counter the narrative, as they would call it, um, that this was an unfair process. Um, uh, there was one particular story that, w- that was uh, in the Australian run by, um, by Simon Benson, uh, which was headlined, uh, Centrelink Debt Scare Backfires on Labour. And she says, well, that was an article we liked. <laughs> It's 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 well, it's, can, it's everything that yeah. people fear happens at the highest level of government and the highest level of media. It seems it it cohere's it, it with that completely. The idea that it's all a chummy game of favors and access, and the actual and spin and mm. and controlling and manipulating the narrative. Mm. And we saw all of that, of course, because the thing is, there is you know some media outlets are really happy to. Um, you know, um, there are goodies and baddies in society and this concept of the dull bludger Mm -hmm. is a narrative that that many media outlets are happy just to keep running. And, you know, on another story, we're seeing it in real time in a way in terms of what's happening, you know, the awful unfolding of the story or, you know, the reality for um, people in Alice Springs and how that is suddenly flared up as a as a media obsession um, and just one sort of little example of how certain elements of the mainstream media perpetuate these really, really damaging narratives. There was one... um, one interview subject that kept popping up, you know, just like fallen dominoes from 2GB to Nine News to the Today Show uh, to to um, news.com.au um, and they were often referred to as out, an outback nurse um, and, um, you know, uh, the these a lot of these media outlets were, you could, you know, they seemed to be quite hungry for the for the narrative and mm-hmm. for some evidence. And she stepped forward with eyewitness, you know, alleged eyewitness testimony of horrific abuse of kids to explain, you know, why they might be out roaming the street at nights because they're too afraid to go go home because of this incredible violence um, that they're experiencing and you know she popped up again and again and again in tv interviews and and on radio um and each time um whoever was interviewing her reeled off her um 
uh, you referred to her as a public health health nurse, legitimised her credentials and intimated that she is up there currently working on the ground in this role in remote Aboriginal communities. I think maybe one suggested that it was a past role. Um, but um, and then and then soon afterwards, I saw someone who lives in in Alice and uh, who is a nurse um, posted a, a thread basically saying, "Who is this person? Mm. They don't live here, you know." And a very cursory internet search revealed that this person is a um, cosmetic nurse uh, who um, is based in Darwin, which is not Alice Springs, and it flies in and flies out of Alice Springs to um, perform her, you know, in her, her co- cosmetic duties, inject people with Botox, whatever it might be, and um, and has been doing that for seven years. So might have at some time in the distant past had some sort of public health role, but certainly it's not current. And I think the disgusting thing, you know, there was a news.com.au headline that dramatically quoted her as saying there are things, she's seen things she can't unsee. And in her TV interviews, she listed all these absolutely, you know, horrendous abuses that she'd apparently, apparently seen. And um, of children and I just think, you know, and, and specifically referring to remote Aboriginal communities and I just sort of think, you know, when someone is making those charges very publicly, mm-hmm. you know, surely media outlets have the duty of care to those communities as much as anything to um, do some basic background checks. Absolutely. I mean, I think <laughs> certainly, I mean, that, that is the thing that really stood out. A few things really stood out. And as I say, you know, it, it, you could, whatever the legitimacy of, of, of what she has and, and hasn't seen, there's an element that there's a, a lot of stories where she is the only voice. Yes. That there is no, there is no, um, there's no one from the, there's no indigenous voice. <laughs> Heaven for fame. A current um, working, you know, or, current or, Aboriginal it, health worker in Alice Springs. Yeah, yeah. Per, it, because it's, it's a very, very difficult crazy. and complicated situation. Um, even even uh, no one would deny that. Um, the idea that you have one, yeah, one loud, angry voice is all that you need is is troubling. Let's say. Yeah, and it's just, you know. Australian media, parts of the Australian media telling on themselves time and time again. Mm. On that note, we are out. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Four Corners' Louise Milligan for joining us this evening. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.